part of authenticity is being unapologetic about all aspects of who you are, what you bring to the table, and really an alignment between your actions and behavior and your values and standing inside your values, not outside of them. Positivity and optimism, not unbridled, irrational, untethered positivity, but it's really important when you're in a role like mine where you have an organization that you're leading, but also all these other leaders who I'm interacting with. I want to make sure that I'm not transmitting negativity or cynicism because there are a lot of people who I'm working with who are trying to create and build a lot of important things for the world. Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. I hope you enjoyed our last episode where we talked to Marzio Schena, founder and CEO of Note Music. Marzio told us about how he's building a marketplace where individual investors and music fans can invest in the publishing catalogs of their favorite artists. We also spent a good amount of time discussing what it is like to be a young founder. Our guest today is Kurt Landon, CEO and founder of Inspira. Unlike Marzio, Kurt started his journey as an entrepreneur a lot later in life. As a matter of fact, he started Inspire after spending over 20 years in people management and HR, both at global companies like Biogen, Johnson Johnson, Pfizer, as well as high-growth tech startups like Expedia and Pinterest. Inspira provides a unique and innovative blend of HR services to both high-growth startups and large global corporations. We had a fascinating conversation, which ran a little longer than usual. So I broke it in two episodes. In this episode, you will hear about Kurt's journey to become a leader, and you will also hear how a career in HR and people management can actually be great training to become an entrepreneur. In the next episode, you will hear about how Kurt designed Inspira, and specifically, you will hear how he used what he learned in his two decades working internally in HR and people management to identify a set of mission-critical issues. And so Inspira is really creating services that are designed to tackle these mission-critical issues and help companies grow. Finally, those of you who are regular listeners of the podcast know that at the end of every episode, I have three personal questions. I ask my guests about a hobby. I ask them about a business expression that drives them crazy. And I ask them to share a food for the body or food for the soul. You're going to hear the business expression that drives them crazy actually at the end of the next episode. And in this episode, Kurt will tell us about a personal interest. And then I'm going to give away a little something. He's going to have a very interesting story about a recipe that is really meaningful to him and that's sort of a metaphor for life. And if you enjoy the recipe, it's going to be on the webpage of the episode because he has very kindly shared it with us. So enjoy this episode and then tune in for part two. Kurt, welcome to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. And I'm going to start with a quick disclosure and transparency. I have a working relationship with your company but you're here not because of the relationship. I have the relationship because I'm a big fan of the work that you've done and are doing. So welcome to the podcast. And let's start, why don't you give our listeners sort of your background, your story, and how you got here. Thanks, Dino. And it's a pleasure to be with you today. So I'm Kurt Landon. I'm the founder and CEO of Inspira, and we're an HR and human capital professional services firm. And we do human capital and HR consulting work, as well as HR technology and HR search. 
But by way of background, I have been in this field, in the broader HR field for about 27 years and started off my career in the mid-90s. My actual first job uh, in the working world was as a software engineer with Accenture, Anderson Consulting, back in the 90s. And so a bit of an unconventional background for an HR leader and uh, navigated my way over to the people side of things at Accenture and then spent the subsequent years in different industries, different size and scale global organizations, um, many years in life sciences with companies like Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson and Biogen in Cambridge, as well as many years in tech. I was an HR executive at Expedia in the US and uh, the UK and then uh, ultimately was the chief people officer at Pinterest and helped them prepare to go public. And when I left about four years ago, I started in Spira. And um, I'm based uh, geographically in Southern California. I live in uh, the Palm Springs area, which is uh, quite warm this time of year, which I think is repayment for the many, many years I spent in lots of cold, snowy and rainy cities around the world. That's fabulous. And I have to say that definitely in January and February, I'm always a little envious of the weather you guys enjoy there. <laughs> so you started your entrepreneur career fairly late in your professional journey. What was the driver to go on your own after so many years in much larger corporate environments? Well, one of the interesting things that not a lot of people know about me is I actually was a childhood entrepreneur. So I have a bit of this in my blood. I don't always talk a lot about it because uh, it could be maybe misperceived as a glorified lemonade stand business that many children have. But I was sort of that quintessential childhood entrepreneur who was sort of really like a 40-year-old even when I was maybe five or six years old. And so I was always interested in business, which was an unusual thing because I came from a family where no one was really involved in the business world. Uh, my mother was a Washington, D.C. public school teacher for 30 years. My father is still a practicing physician in the Washington, D.C. area. Most of my brothers, so I, I grew up in a family of six boys, with one exception, everyone's really uh, in non-business careers. And so I'm not sure really where it came from. I think it was just sort of somewhat innate. But I had a really interesting and, and successful business that I started in high school that uh, I eventually sold when I went off to college. And then I started another business in college that was really successful that ultimately, there was sort of a quote unquote, hostile takeover by the university. So they took over my business and ran it for themselves. So that was an interesting sort of corporate Darwinism lesson. And so I knew that I would always in my professional career, as an adult have a business at some point, but the delay in not getting to it until later in life, I think, was really because I was raised in a family where there was a very strong emphasis on practicality and being grounded. Don't be a dreamer. Don't you know move to Hollywood and be an actor because you've got to pay your bills. And so I remember as my parents witnessed me spending a lot of time dreaming and thinking about being an entrepreneur, they said, that's great, but you need to make sure that you always have money in the bank and that you can pay your bills. And then when you have that financial security, that's the time to maybe take a little bit of risk, if at all. And so most of my career, there were times where I was really tempted to do this, but I didn't actually, in all cases, feel it was the right time for those reasons because of some of those values that I grew up with. So that's a little bit of by way of background. Now, when I finally decided to kind of take the plunge, and I know we'll we'll probably talk about this a little bit more in a moment, but you know, sometimes challenges and adversity, I think, give you the sort of the kick in the pants that you need to take that that step. And 
after a succession of very challenging corporate roles that I was in, where I became sort of increasingly disillusioned with corporate politics and organizational life, especially at the top of an organization, I really realized that I'm, I'm not actually cut out for those sharp elbows and sort of C-suite politics. There are a lot of people who are really good at it. I'm not. I think in a way I'm a bit hopefully too nice and uh, high integrity for that kind of behavior. And I just saw one organization after another that was sort of behaving that way in terms of leadership and organizational life. Ultimately, I actually lost my job at Pinterest. And again, I'm sure we'll talk about that. But through that adversity and having to decide what's next, I really felt that at that time, it was the right time to finally take the plunge. And, you know, I'm almost 50 now. And so I felt that if I really didn't make that move after the Pinterest experience, I probably wouldn't ever do it. And so that was the right time and for the right reasons. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I tell my story when I was 48. I remember looking at being in a corporate world and thinking, if I have to do this for 20 more years, I'd rather die. And sort of to me, that was the driver. One thing that I find fascinating, and, and I think some of it ended up being actually product expertise, if you will, but the HR chief people officer, et cetera, is not the path that is traditionally associated with entrepreneurs. What are the advantages as an entrepreneur that you think you got by actually having gone this route, which is not as traditional? Well, you know, Dino, I love that question. I think it's really an excellent topic. And I agree with you. I think it's not something that's very common at least historically. Now, I do think that that's changing because I think as the field of human resources is becoming much more professional, it's elevating, it's much more business anchored. And so you see more and more senior HR executives who have very strong business acumen and very strong financial acumen. I think that sort of disconnect is probably closing. I also think if you think about really good contemporary human resources leaders, and you think about what we have to do in our jobs, a lot of it is figuring out how to navigate organizations, understanding how organizations work. Usually, there's a lot of building and creation and working with every function in an organization. So, there are actually very few functions in a company or roles in a company where you can have a purview and visibility across every function within a fully integrated business. And I think HR now is one of those functions. So I would actually say, and I hadn't really thought about it until you asked the question, but I think there's probably you will see many more entrepreneurs coming out of the HR field probably for those reasons. It reminds me of Mary Alice Mora, who was a guest a few weeks ago, and she's a nurse. And she ended up being chief of staff for one of the 15 large U.S. areas for the Navy and the CEO of an hospital. And she said, you know, nurses are the only people in a hospital that touch every everybody. And, you know, she's now on a mission to get more nurses to step up in leadership roles. So maybe that will be your mission to get more CEOs out of the HR area. You spent obviously a lot of time thinking about how to lead, you know, how to shape connections with the company. When did you start being intentional about defining your leadership style and sort of how do you define your leadership style? So if I'm really honest, which of course, that's how I operate, maybe making myself a bit vulnerable for a moment. I think if I really take a critical view of myself in the past over the years, 
I, for a variety of reasons, and I can share a few of the hypotheses as to why, but I think over the years in my career, I was really critical of the leaders who led above me, the people I worked for. And while I usually had really good relationships with my HR leaders who I worked for and line leaders, I always felt like I was monitoring, evaluating, critiquing and saying, if I was in their role, why aren't they doing this? You know, they're not being responsive enough. They're not making enough time for, you know, one-on-ones and my development. They are on a panel discussion at a, you know, all company meeting and they don't seem focused or articulate enough. They're not representing the HR function well enough. And so I had my list of play-by-play critiques. And I think that that was a really formative set of sort of experiences that I had doing that because I think later in my career, I did some really intensive work to understand what that was all about. And I am a huge proponent of the kind of work that you do, Dino. I believe in the power of executive coaching and through uh, multiple engagements I had with really talented executive coaches that really challenged me to take a hard look at myself and really understand every aspect of who I am as a human and as a leader, combined with many years in therapy in my personal life and just a lot of work on myself, I really was not afraid to evaluate and analyze why I am the way I am and the behavior that I was engaging in and actions I was taking and to what extent that was in line with my value system and my own personal beliefs and and missions. And so there was one coach in particular, Mike Finer, who used to be the chief people officer at Pepsi. And I worked with him as my coach when I was at Biogen. And he's an incredible professor and author. And he has a book called The Finer Points of Leadership. And there's a chapter in that book called Boss Killers. And it talks about this concept of exactly what I just shared with you about people who are sort of these critique prone, analytical sort of scorekeepers of their bosses, and that they actually intentionally or unintentionally are tearing down their bosses. And I did a lot of work with Mike to understand this because we started recognizing that there had been this pattern there. And so part of what I realized from that experience is, yes, I was doing that. And I really didn't have any business doing that because until you're in that job, until you're in any job or role, I would say in life, you know, you see the same thing with people who critique parents and it's easy to do when you're not a parent and I'm not a parent. And so I still don't critique parents, but it's not that different from this until you're in that chief people officer job, until you're in that vice president of human resources job, in my opinion, you have no business overly critiquing and being overly harsh about evaluating how that person is doing because you have no idea or purview into the full set of challenges and responsibilities. So I think that was a really formative experience that helped me sort of formulate my own leadership beliefs and approach and philosophy. So I think that was one big one. I think another one is just being a human resources leader. So in the same way you asked me the question about the connection points or lack of connection points between being an HR practitioner and then an entrepreneur, I would say one of the positives of being in the HR field is, in theory, we should have some subject matter expertise about leadership. And so I was finding that for much of my career, I was spending a disproportionate amount of my time internally coaching CEOs and senior executives and evaluating leaders. And I think that's part of why I felt it was justifiable to be so critical of my own bosses, because I was sort of a self-proclaimed leadership expert. 
So I think, but turning the tables and looking at yourself and evaluating yourself and really also not just being self-critical, but also figuring out what do you stand for as a leader and who you are is really important work that requires focus. And so again, I think through all that work I did on myself with coaches and therapists and uh, eventually some really, really involved bosses that I had, I started to really formulate a bit of a leadership vision for myself, you know, obviously, there's all kinds of good courses and books and other learning activities that helped inform that over the years as well. And then I think the last one would be just, you know, the the bit of the cliche of, I think, adversity and hardship, there's nothing like adversity and hardship to help you figure out who you are as a human, but also who you are as a leader. And uh, I had a, uh, again, a succession of several really challenging experiences at the executive level in the corporate world, some from my time at Expedia at the end years there, some from the end years of my time at Biogen, and then ultimately the final chapter of my time at Pinterest, where those experiences caused me to really have to look at myself and think about who I am as a leader and a human and how I want to lead going forward. And I do feel very confident in my leadership now, although I'm always I'm self-critical and I'm a work in progress, but I feel that my the way in which I lead now was very heavily informed by those sort of textured experiences that I had over the last eight or nine years. Is there one of those experiences that you would be willing to share a little bit and like maybe like that sort of distill the two or three key lessons that you would learn from that specific experience? Yes. Yeah, so I think what I'll do is maybe I'll highlight a snippet from each of those three experiences, but maybe not share which organization they were from so that I can just be really transparent and candid. Because obviously, if I share which company, then it's a little bit difficult to do that. But so if you think about my experiences across, you know, those three organizations between Biogen, Expedia and Pinterest, all amazing organizations in their own ways. And I have a lot of respect for them. But from my personal experience, maybe three key things that I encountered and and experienced that really were formative things that shaped me. So in one of those organizations, I had a manager who one of the things that that leader taught me was that, you know, go ahead and take risks, make mistakes, play at work, have fun. And if you fail... I'll catch you and I have your back. And I talk about this all the time with my team. I use that same language. The other side of that coin was it wasn't authentic. So it was a great line and I bought into that, but that gave me the confidence to take on some pieces of work that I had no experience or expertise to prepare me for that. And I knew I was going to make mistakes. And uh, while I did a really good job, I made mistakes. And when I made those mistakes that original promise really wasn't there. And I was very much kind of criticized and penalized. And there was no recollection of those comments earlier. And so it was really sort of a set of false words. So what I took from that is, I absolutely tell my team now, have fun, take risks, make mistakes. I know you haven't done this before. When you fall, I'll be there to catch you. But I really mean it because I had that experience where I know what it feels like when that's not authentic. So I think that's one of the three things I took from those three experiences. In another one of those three experiences, I had really, I would say, one of the most difficult times I've ever had in my career or life. There was an organization where I was ready to move into a more senior level leadership role. And I was in the very top standing from a performance perspective. I was one of the most 
top talent individuals in the organization. Things were going so well in my career. There was a senior leadership change. And when the new leader came in, we did not get along at all. And I couldn't really understand why. I felt like there was something else at play. And what I later learned was that the fact that I am an openly gay executive was not okay with this individual. And that leader went and told my boss that they did not feel comfortable working with me because of my sexual orientation. And furthermore, said that my sexual orientation in their mind from a values perspective was the same as being a pedophile. And that was so deeply hurtful to me. Um, I don't have children of my own, but I have eight godchildren. I used to be a camp counselor. A huge part of my life is children. And so to make an an allegation or a correlation that being gay is the same as being a pedophile is egregious. And what I should have done is I should have fought that head on. But unfortunately, it came at really the most difficult time in my life. One of my brothers died tragically a couple of months before this. I went through a very painful divorce where I came home on my two-year wedding anniversary and found out that my husband was leading a secret life. And I didn't have the fortitude or the emotional capacity to fight at all and to really advocate for myself. And so I just walked away. And there are times where I regret that from uh, the fact that I, I'm tougher than that and that you know I could have maybe helped other people by standing up for what's right. But I also forgive myself for that because I think we all have limits as to our energy and our emotional capacity. And at that time, I just had nothing left. So I'm at peace with that. But my lesson that I took from that experience is an obvious one, which is that from a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging perspective, that is blatantly unacceptable. That's the obvious thing. The less obvious thing was that, you know, being an HR practitioner for almost 30 years, I've done any number of investigations on people who feel marginalized, discriminated against, um, etc. And there was always a little part of me, if I'm honest, where when I did that kind of work, I thought, and I never really said this out loud, or really even was aware that I felt this way. But I thought, is this person just creating trouble? Is this really something that they experienced? Can't you just get back to work? You know, why are we creating all of this, you know, disruption? And that experience, I'm very thankful for it, because it gave me an actual experience that helped me know what it feels like to be in that incredibly scary, toxic and lonely place. Because I was also told, if you talk about this with anyone, you'll immediately be fired. And, um, and so I couldn't even talk to anyone about it anyone. And so I felt I've never felt more alone professionally. So my bigger lesson from that is, A, don't judge until you are in that situation. So similar to what we talked about before about being critical of leaders Two, just to understand how lonely and horrible it feels when you're in that isolated situation. And so to really be on the lookout for people who might be experiencing that who you absolutely don't know they're going through that. And the last and final experience of the three was one where 
I joined an organization because I was under the impression that it was a kinder, softer, gentler organization for that industry, one that had fewer sharp elbows, and it was a nice, kind organization. And I really bought into that. I joined with Bigger, and I saw everything through that lens. And as I was settling into the organization, especially as an HR leader, I started hearing from employees and leaders at all levels that the culture was actually really problematic, that the uh, other members of the C-suite were not engaging in good leadership behavior, that there were ethical concerns and diversity concerns. And I dismissed all of it because it was colored by my own belief, by that message that I was sold on, that this is a good, high-integrity, kind organization. And so there are multiple lessons here. One is really being careful and, and sure that you're listening and receptive to all signals culturally in an organization for yourself, but also if you're an HR practitioner on behalf of your constituency, the employees in the organization. So that was a really big lesson for me. And then two, that as you are assessing culture of an organization, it reveals itself in layers over the course of time. Just like any other culture, geographic culture, you know, you and I share a uh, history of Italy, you know, your background, and I was an Italian major in college, and I lived and studied in Italy. And geographic culture reveals itself in layers, right? I, I lecture on this at universities, and the same thing is true for corporate culture. And so there's what you see, kind of that tip of the iceberg and those early signals and, and, and characteristics. But sometimes it takes a while to set in. And the last part of this, and then, you know, I'm sure we can move on is it reminded me of the seven years that I spent living in the South and at the risk of making some broad sweeping geographic cultural generalizations. You know, there are a lot of things about living in the South that were incredible and that were wonderful, the hospitality and the warmth and this incredibly warm, open welcome. I've never seen anything like it anywhere I've ever lived. Yet there's the cliche about Southern culture where everyone's smiling and saying nice things. And then you walk out of the room and there's the knife in your back. I can't believe he said that. I can't believe he was wearing that. That's very much what I experienced in this culture where there is sort of this veneer of something that felt very kind and warm and soft and less sharp elbows. But in reality, if you peel back those layers, it was just as brutal and cutthroat as some of the overtly difficult cultures that I had seen early in my career. So that was an incredibly important lesson. And now as I do this kind of work with hundreds of client organizations on the topic of culture, and I'm teaching about it, it's an important lesson that I took away from that. You know, what's really interesting when you're talking about the South, I spent uh, a short time of my life and career in Nashville, and it was a challenging time for a number of reasons. But my experience is the same. And you know, what I'll observe is like, the people who truly walk and talk, that niceness and kindness in Nashville, I have friends there and I have Southern friends who have been amazing friends to me and incredible supporter, etc. But I walked into the corporate environment that I was in in Nashville, straight out of New York and Boston, and took everything at face value. And, and even in, in some other situations outside of work and learned really the hard way not to take things at face value all the time. That is true. But and I think one observation that I would make in your comments, what I really like is the you're really going into a, every experience with trust that, you know, you're like, I'm going to take 
this, I'm going to trust that what I'm seeing is real and true. You know, and, and I think that whereas in a situation where that does not end up being real and true, there's a risk, you know, of getting hurt or of, you know, things not working out. I do still think that, and if I take my experience in the South, the fact that I took that at face value, the, the friendships, the value of the friendships that I have as a result of embracing it, you know, it's totally worth the two or three bad apples, if you will, that I ran into. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I make a conscious choice every day to start my day with positivity and trust. And I'm definitely in the camp of people where you have my trust and it's there to be lost. And I'm not waiting for it to be lost either. But I don't want to live my life jaded and cynical and bitter. And I certainly, like anyone, have enough of these personal and professional experiences where I could. But I choose not to live my life that way, because I think that's a really unfortunate way to live your life. But I think one last thing I thought of on this that I want to share is that I got some really good advice also by an incredible executive coach I worked with when I was at Pinterest. And then after I left, uh, Maggie Hensel, who's just unbelievable. And one of the things that Maggie taught me is that go into any situation professionally and personally with your predominant hypothesis about what's going on. So in your experience, you're in these social settings or business settings in Nashville, and your predominant hypothesis can be that what they say is true, what I'm taking at face value is to be taken as authentic and sincere. But then carve out a little tiny piece of the back of your brain and heart for an alternate hypothesis that hopefully is not true, but might be. And keep it there, be aware it's there, come back to it every so often. Don't go look for evidence and data to foster or nurture that alternative hypothesis. But when that data is there, don't look past it or minimize it or ignore it, but perhaps go ahead and put that in that little pocket. And that was one of the most transformational pieces of advice I got because I think there's a, it's not as simple as do you trust or do you not trust? It's trust, absolutely. And be smart about it and have this other little pocket of your brain and heart. And that's changed my whole way of life and work, quite honestly. Yeah, 100% agree with that approach, actually. It's sort of, I think if you go through enough coaching systems or coaching books, leadership training programs, I think. Ultimately, there's a notion of sort of being in an even place where, you know, you take the good positive stuff and the negative part, the negative things up to a certain point, they're helpful, right? Because there's signals there and, and you need to be aware of the signal. But the second that you let those negative signal be the drivers is when you end up into trouble. Yes, that resonates a lot with me. Great. So to, to wrap up this, this conversation around the leadership portion of it, if you will. How do you think of your best self as a leader? What are the qualities that you try to embody? What are, you know, how do you try to behave? By the way, I would say this is dynamic. I'm still learning every single day. In fact, I would say I'm probably learning more now uh, based on what I'm doing in my career than I ever have before, primarily because just the scale is so much different. You know, when I was in an in-house role, you have your key you know, six or eight leaders you're working with. Now I'm working with hundreds of leaders at the same time as, as I know you are too in your thriving coaching practice. And, and so my frame of reference is much broader. So I think, you know, the first is, which I think fits well with your name of your podcast is really around authenticity. And I think 
that's something I've really spent a lot of time exploring and, and honing for myself, but also is something I look for in leaders who I hire. And so, you know, what is authenticity? I think for what it means for me is a couple of things. I think it's a demonstrated willingness through action to be vulnerable, the good, the bad, the neutral, everything, the full, the full package, as you can see, based on probably how I hope how I'm answering your questions is it's not reckless unediting. That's not what it means, but it's not being afraid to, as Brene Brown would say, kind of let your armor down. So I think that's one. I think another part of authenticity is being unapologetic about all aspects of who you are and what you bring to the table and really an alignment between your actions and behavior and your values and standing inside your values, not outside of them. So all of that kind of wrapped up in authenticity is, is one of the most important. I think another is positivity and optimism, not unbridled, irrational, untethered positivity or optimism. But, you know, in general, as a human being, I wake up every single morning positive and optimistic. And I start my day thinking it's going to be a great day. And I am definitely someone who's very much part of the gratitude movement. And so I um, kind of am anchored in gratitude. And I do daily affirmations, if you will, because I think it's really important when you're in a role like mine, where you have an organization that you're leading, but also all these other leaders who I'm interacting with, I want to make sure that I'm not transmitting negativity or cynicism, because there are a lot of people who I'm working with who are trying to create and build a lot of important things for the world. So that's really important um, in terms of how I comport myself, but also what I look for in leaders who I hire. I think the ability to establish professional intimacy is one of the biggest things. And I use that language really intentionally. So people talk about creating a culture of trust and being an inclusive leader and all of these things. But I think if you if you really channel all of that, for me, one of the red threads that run through those different things is about being able to establish and foster and earn and create professional intimacy. And for me, that, again, is really, really important because I think if you establish professional intimacy with people you work with... Um, there's so many good things that flow from that. There's direct correlations, of course, from a research perspective between establishing professional intimacy and trust, followership, alignment, retention, any number of things. So that's one. I think getting stuff done. So you can do all the things that I mentioned, but if you actually can't get stuff done and move the dial on things and actually pull things through, pick your expression of choice, I think it's potentially motivating and inspirational, but you also have to be able to deliver. And so in my role, there's a lot of stuff that I have to get done. And so I think that creates a bit of balance with the things that I mentioned. And then maybe I would say being humble. I remind myself of this every day because I'm really excited about the business that I'm building and that I've built. And I'm proud of the experiences that I've had in my career. And I, at the same time, never want to lack humility. And so I really kind of have a conversation with myself every day about kind of staying grounded and being humble. And it's really, really important to me, always kind of keeping myself in check. So there's some other things, but I think those are probably the most important ones. That's a pretty good list. Moving to a personal question, do you have any interests or hobbies outside of work that are important to you and how have they shaped or influenced your work? Well, I think in my personal life, I am really happy. You know, I, I shared earlier 
that I went through a really painful divorce and never really envisioned sort of finding love again, so to speak. But I have an incredible husband named Andrew. Um, he's a residential realtor. And we have an amazing life together. We don't have any children. We have a puppy, uh, Francesca, a wire fox terrier. And we really have this amazing life. And I just feel very, very blessed and fortunate to have found that, albeit a little bit later in my life. Um, he's been a tireless advocate and cheerleader for me in terms of building Inspira and really just sort of finding my happy place and my life's work. And so that's a huge area of um, focus and passion for me. And then on a hobby level, I would say, you know, anything and everything related to food. So I, I didn't share earlier, but my, my high school business was a catering business. And so I'm a cook. I love everything about food and cooking and wine and everything, all of that. And so any chance I get, I like to cook. I'm an avid baker. And so that's really an area of passion for me. I love watching cooking shows. I love reading recipes. I started a recipe exchange within my company and will probably create a cookbook at some point. And so I just, for whatever reason, am really drawn to food. And I think culturally, you know, I grew up in a Jewish family. I studied in Italy. And so I've always been drawn to cultures where food brings people together. And so for me, there's a really incredible emotional component to it. So yeah, I would say those are some of my personal interests. So I'm going to roll straight into what is normally the last question. I, I have a question that I call food for your body or food for the soul, where I ask my guests to either choose something that is or a recipe that is meaningful to them or a drink, which would be food for your body or something like a book, a piece of music, movie, theater, art that is meaningful to them. And some choose to do both, but what would you share with us? I, I know exactly what I want to share. So my most prized and treasured recipe, which I actually gladly share openly because I want the world to enjoy it, is the most incredible, decadent, phenomenal, yet outrageously simple flourless chocolate cake. And this is really, it actually represents many aspects of my being for a couple of interesting reasons, which I'll share. So first, where did this recipe come from? I, when I was working at Biogen, I took my team to an offsite in the Berkshires at the Lenox uh, Resort, and they prepared a really beautiful lunch for us for our meeting. And the dessert was this flourless chocolate cake. And when I tasted it, I just experienced uh, complete euphoria and magic. And from a culinary perspective, it was flawless. But it also transported me back to a really special time in my life. So in 2007, 2008, I was working for Johnson & Johnson, and they sent me overseas to lead HR for two cardiovascular companies at J&J. And I was living in Belgium, the chocolate capital of the world. And I remember my very first day when I moved to Brussels, the team took me out for lunch. And uh, aside from being uh, surprised and shocked that everyone was having wine and cocktails at lunch and then going back to the office, the other thing that really w positively shocked me was this moulu au chocolat, so this uh, flourless chocolate cake. I'd never, ever tasted anything like it in my mouth. It just, it was luxurious. It was unctuous. It was simple, but had depth and layers of flavor. And I'm a big Ina Garten fan, the Barefoot Contessa, and I watch her show and read her books. And she always says, when you're eating something chocolate, close your eyes and 
99% of the time, it doesn't taste like anything, but you think it does because you see it and your brain says, this is chocolate and says, this is what it's supposed to taste like. But if you close your eyes, you don't have that uh, cognition and it actually tastes like nothing. And so she always said, if you are eating something that's really high quality chocolate made from really pure chocolate and a very high cocoa percentage, it will absolutely taste like chocolate with your eyes closed. So I was sitting in the restaurant in Brussels in 2007, and I took a bite and I closed my eyes and I had never tasted something so intensely chocolate and wonderful. And I remembered that I used to actually, every time I would fly home to see my family while I was living there, I would buy four of these Molua chocolat and I would carefully take them back to the States with me. Fast forward back to the experience at Biogen offsite at the Berkshires at the Lenox Hotel, they bring us this dessert and it tasted exactly the same. And so I immediately went back in time, however many years that was, eight years earlier, and it was literally the exact same texture, appearance, flavor. And so I asked my assistant at the time, I said, can you please go talk to the chef and get the recipe for this? Because this has been my lifelong obsession since my time in Brussels. So she got the recipe. And to this day, it's my most cherished recipe in part because it only has five ingredients. And every one of the five ingredients has to be the best, the best butter, the best vanilla, the best cocoa, etc. And it's easy. You don't need a mixer. You don't need all this fancy equipment. You can make it in a bowl. You can assemble it in five minutes and put it in the oven for 35 minutes and it comes out. And every time I make it, people say it's the best dessert they've ever eaten. And so there's something about that aside from all the history of my life experiences, but there's something about it that I think is so analogous to so many aspects of life and what I do for a living, which is the simplicity is profound the final product is mind-blowing and exceeds expectations. And so for me, I take away from that, that, you know, simplicity, high quality, high impact, I'll bring it back to Inspire. I feel like that's what we're trying to do every day in our work is um, kind of fit for purpose, but amazingly exceptional. So that would be clearly the thing that I would highlight. And I'm happy to share the recipe with you. Thank you for listening to this episode. Now let's start with the important items. Kurt did indeed share the recipe with me and you can find it at bit.ly backslash Kurtcake. Spell K-U-R-T-C-A-K-E. If you enjoyed the episode, please tell a friend who may enjoy it and tell them to listen to it. And if you really like the show, please tell all your friends and talk about it in social media. Every little bit helps. Now make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you do not miss any episodes when they're released. And if you listen on a platform like Apple Podcast or Good Pods that allows you to leave reviews, please give us a really good rating and leave a review. As usual, stick around because at the end of the credits, I am going to share a song by Susan Catania. This time it will actually be a song by her duo Honest Mechanic. To find out more about Inspira, go to their website. E-N-S-P-I-R-A-H-R.com. So, inspirahr.com. You can find our podcast online at al4ep.com with the number four. And you can email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at al4edp. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. 
It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, as promised, a song by Honest Mechanic. It's called In Between. Enjoy. Stuck inside this metal box Flying coast to coast non-stop Little drinks on big thoughts I'm not found but I'm not lost Down below the patchwork states Places I've never been Spent so much time on either end Long to be In between, not see the end coming Forget the start Let my heart be here and now running Every single minute All this world is given The good, the bad, and all That's in between Like they're real Numb the pain, forget to feel Up above these earthly ghosts I think I have control There's so much beauty letting go in between 